In this interview, I am joined by Jakura Dorje, a lama in the non-monastic Arotera lineage of Tibetan Buddhism and partner of previous guest, Metzal Wangmo. We learn about Jagir's early explorations in Zen and the Karma Kagyu traditions before an unusual meeting in France changed his course to become a Nyingmapa. We discuss Jagir's early apprenticeship in the Arotera and explore his special interest in that lineage's magical movements of Trulkor. Jagir Dorje recounts his time in Nepal with Kunzang Dorje Rinpoche and talks about the unique practice possibilities afforded by his relationship with Metzal Wangmo. So without further ado, Jagir Dorje. So Jagir Dorje, thank you for appearing on the podcast. Thank you, my pleasure. So I'm curious, how did you become interested in meditation and Buddhism and things of that nature? Okay, interesting question. So uh, I guess you can start, you know, earlier, you can kind of go to late teens or something like that. It was uh, uh, late teens maybe you know 15 16 or something i was kind of you know going to high high school college and i had a few friends my best friend at that time he was uh, american back in sweden this is uh, sweden so in the south of sweden a place called lund which is a bit like a university town so it was quite a lot of influx of different people so from my school days my best friend there was a american guy actually half African-American, half American. And at that time, I think we were all kind of, you know, looking for something. So because they were kind of, you know, American, black, it was, they read about Islam or something, but that was not really, I didn't find that particular exciting, that thing. So I think I, for some reason I picked up Buddhism. And I can't really say why, because I was not, really interested in religion until then at all i kind of i i wouldn't have inquired you know we didn't go to church my parents you know my parents were very kind of open-minded but it was not like we had a religious upbringing uh you know going to church and it was sweden generally it's quite secular uh country so it was you know it was not any influence like that it was more like some kind of you know wanted to find something alternative, I think. And uh, before that, you know, I was mostly, you know, when, you know, when I was young, up to 10, 12 years old, I was mostly kind of only into diggers, you know, spent my whole life drawing diggers, going out in the countryside, looking at diggers and other. And then I got interested in a bit in football and that was the kind of, you know, my main thing for a few years. And then in high school, we started to read more you know, wanting to go on some kind of intellectual quest and things. And so that's where I started to kind of take an interest in Buddhism and not really knowing what it was either. So I went to the library because I had quite a nice library where I was growing up. So I started to be interested in Zen Buddhism because there was something attract, uh, attracting with that, the kind of silent sitting part. And but also some kind of interest in the kind of Tibetan Buddhist aspect as well. So that was probably when I was 17 or something like that, quite early. And there was not very many friends who was interested in this either. And then I kind of inquired, I went to the local Buddhist groups in uh, my area. And uh, there was kind of all many 
things in my life has been kind of just chance or this kind of accidental meetings. You know, it goes somewhere and then you meet the person and then something happened and there's kind of a uh, something on the path, you know, just turn you into a certain, uh, in a different direction. So one time I tried this Zen meditation, it was probably the second time. And it was only, you know, only me and the lady running the Zen group. We were sitting there, uh, two other guys came in and they were a bit older than me and they run a kind of an umbrella organization group in the south of Sweden, which kind of then uh, in, uh, invited different teachers, you know, from all Buddhist traditions. So I started to take uh, part in that, in, in that group and then got more and more interested in Tibetan Buddhism. And uh, in Sweden, at that time, the Tibetan Buddhism was mainly Karma Kagyu. So I started to take an interest uh, in, in, uh, in that. And uh, uh, yeah, then meditating, practicing more and more uh, in, the, in the Karma Kagyu uh, tradition, took refuge. And uh, then I also bumped into one guy in the library, an older man who was an old student of Dudorimshi, actually, and Namkanobu, who for some reason had come to Sweden. And I was planning, this was when I graduated college, I was probably 18 or something. And then he said, and I had planned to go to France for a retreat, uh, a Chenresi retreat. And he said, yeah, but if you go to France anyway, you need to go to Doridon, to this uh, large place uh, filled with Dudrum, uh, with Nyingma Lamas in, uh, in France. And I kind of, I didn't really know so much about that kind of, the, the Nyingma tradition at that time. Yeah, well, so I went to France and uh, uh, to Doridon and I got off the train there and uh, I didn't really had any, you know, I didn't know where I was going and I didn't really had any uh, goal side. I just went there because this man had told me, you know, you need to go there and see if you could meet anyone. Interesting lamas there. So I got a ride from one nice French lady when I got off the train station who dropped me off at the first Buddhist center there, which seemed to be have been a Karmakagyu center and they were all engaged in the practice session and uh, so they were kind of all in the gompa and I didn't want to enter the gompa and then they were just going on and going on so I thought God, I'm not waiting here anymore I'm just going for a walk somewhere so I continue up on the road behind them and I saw a house and a church and then there was a man sitting outside that house and we I kind of approached him saying oh, hey how you doing and he was like hey, hey where are you from and that was a caretaker of I think uh, Dilukens's house there. So he said he invited me in to stay two nights in Dilukens's personal house in his shrine room there in France. And uh, so that was kind of my first proper meeting with the Nyingma tradition, actually. Before that, my path had been mainly in the in Karma Kagyu school. And then I ended up staying there for 10 days in their retreat uh, place and meeting also uh, a fantastic old woman. I can't remember her name, but she was the Sangyum, the, the consort of this Kangyu Rinpoche, who was a great, great Nyingma Lama who came to France and settled there maybe in the 
sixties or something. He had already passed on, but he got six children, three three boys and three girls, and all three all the boys are three main Nyingma Tulkus. So I met I didn't meet them. I met her his uh, daughters and also his consort. She had just come out from a six months retreat, and I think that was also one of these kind of. Uh, changes for me when I saw this old lady, she was probably in her 80s already, and yes, you know, same day she came out from a six-month retreat and her presence there, just sitting, coming in and meeting her, sitting there in her presence was just fantastic. So I stayed there for a bit, uh, yeah, maybe two weeks in France, and then I went back to uh, to Sweden. And then somehow I think I got more interested and wanted to explore the Nyingma tradition a bit more, but I also I also found this book, Crystal and the Way of Light, by Nam Kanoberimpshe. And that was really, really interesting because it, it was kind of I really found it interesting, this Tsogshan approach, but also how he kind of uh, approached the Buddhist teaching from the Tsogshan view. So that was really, really interesting. So my idea at that time was actually to try to go and see Nankanoberimpshe, but I also I was kind of at this time quite keen on being a monk as well. So that was my idea to kind of try to kind of take uh, take monk vows and and go that path. And at this time I hadn't really heard anything about you know the non-monastic tradition, even if, if I've been at this place uh, in France. It wasn't really an emphasis on the non-monastic. You know, there was not very many monks and nuns in France. You know, it was just people living their ordinary life. But it was not like any manifestation of the Gokar Changla there in that sense. But, you know, everybody was just doing their own life. And it was really nice to be in that place in France because the uh, people I met there was mainly, you know, older students who'd done lots of retreats and students of Dudermimpshe. And they were so, uh, you know, so ordinary people. It was just, you know, people just minding their own life, doing their, you know, everyday lives and uh, not really in a way trying to be spiritual or like, you know, change your everything in your life to become a spiritual person. Because my background was never in that. So I kind of, you know, I was always wanting to be an ordinary guy, always seeing myself like that, never being on a, spiritual quest or like hippie you know this is the longest beard i've got now in my life you know in mid 40s well so anyway so and then i also picked up a flyer somewhere uh about uh, you know enakba coming to sweden teaching about Tsogshin and the four nalios and because i then had read this book with nam kanobrich i kind of picked up on that, that this is really what I want to explore in terms of, uh, you know, this practice. And uh, at the same time, I also wanted to go this path of becoming a, a monk and uh, trying to meet Nam Kanor. But it was actually the same week and I set off to meet this uh, Lama in... Uh, in Stockholm, the Nakba, 
uh, I had actually the week after I had also an interview book down in Copenhagen with this uh, Tenga Rinpoche, who is quite a famous uh, Kagyu Lama and a great meditator as well. Which I actually I think I had the thought of you know going to go and ask him you know could I become your student and I want to kind of become a monk. And then I went to uh, to Stockholm to meet this Nakba teaching about Tsogchen uh, Semda. Uh, and uh, that was one of Nakshan Rinpoche's uh, students called Nakba Ralshid. And uh, it was really nice, refreshing to meet him because I had, a, at that time, you know, it was before the internet, maybe 96 or something. So the only picture I've seen of me was a black and white picture, you know, in similar, you know, this kind of picture. So I couldn't really tell. And it was a Tibetan name if this was a English man, Westerners or anything. So and you can only you know, I hadn't seen the robes either. And I don't think I've seen the Nakba robes, the robes I'm wearing now, this red and white and blue and the white skirt. Never seen anything like that. And then this Western guy came into the room wearing this kind of very, you know, traditional clothes. I had this, and it was really nice to see that this serious practitioner and also a complete ordinary Western guy. So that, and that kind of, and then we had a really nice uh, talk. Uh, I went on to kind of, uh, because in Sweden at that time, military service was also compulsory. And I wanted to kind of, because, you know, I was Buddhist, so then I wanted to kind of go the non-military service, you know, the, the alternative one, when you work in social care or kindergarten or something. But uh, this Nakba, he suggested, no, there's no problem, you know, to do the military service. You know, it's not like in Sweden you have to go into a war, you know, this is just training because people have to do it. So then I decided to do that, to do, be a kind of working in this, it's not, you know, proper war training, but I did one year of military service, which was really, really fun, you know, meeting people you would never meet, and lots of good physical exercise, you know, learning mechanics, transportation, driving a lorry, shooting, you know, different kind of rifles, guns, and lots of fun, you know, for almost a year. So I did that and kind of, you know, try to keep up my military, not military, my meditation practice do, uh, during that time, you know, finding uh, a few quiet rooms where you can practice or just, you know, because you're out so much in the nature as well in the military, it's always waiting, you know, that's 90% of military service, I would think it's just waiting. So that's quite nice as well. And then uh, we kind of kept up my uh, practice of this before Nalios and then after a year, I met this uh, Nakba Ralshig again, and then I, that's how I kind of wanted to, not deepen, but, you know, more study with the teacher. So then I asked him, you know, can I become your student? And then I became, so that was then this formal apprenticeship uh, of the orator I, uh, I entered into at that time. And uh, I never met any other because this he's only, he had only been to Sweden two times. So I, w I never met any other apprentice uh, before that. So I didn't really know what it was either to be, you know, enter into apprenticeship 
or the other apprentices. Uh, so I was the first oral apprentice in Scandinavia at that time, actually, maybe in 1997, which is quite nice now when it's so much happening up there, flourishing. And uh, yeah, so then I was studying, he was living in London, this uh, Nakba, so we were you know, meeting quite, you know, regular. And then the year after that, 1998, I met Naksham Rinpoche and Kandrodechen the first time because they always used to have summer camps, summer retreats, then four apprentices, like long retreats for 10 days or longer. And uh, that was the, the year after uh, the son, Robert Dudeldorje, was born. So it was very, very nice. I always used to take long walks with Kandrodechen talking to her and looking after Robert when she needed to go and teach with Rinpoche and uh, to get like, so that was the first time I met Naksha Rinpoche in Kandrodechen. And uh, it was also quite fascinating because I was young and I was quite interested in this uh, physical exercises in uh, Buddhist, particularly the ones which are called the Trul course. And so I had this idea that I wanted, because there was going to be an hour apprentice uh, uh, pilgrimage to Nepal, and I had uh, some extra time at that time to kind of go and spend more time in the East. I hadn't been to the East before, so that was uh, going to be my first time. And I had this kind of idea that I wanted to go and see those Togdens in Sopema, you know, like us, the non-monastic Togdans there, who specializes in these physical exercises of uh, Trulkos. So I kind of had a chat with Naksha Rinpoche, and he also, he kind of looked in, well, he, he suggested maybe, you know, it's better also to see, you know, to go and see, it's more who, how, who you meet than just go into different places, he told me at that time. So he suggested that I would just kind of stay in Nepal because we were there anyway. And maybe then also try to see Kungsadol Rinpoche a bit more. So after that pilgrimage, uh, I was staying on. I wanted to go and see Kungsadol Rinpoche as well, which many our, our, our other people have done in our, in our lineage. And I remember I was quite nervous with this. I remember I asked, uh, Nakmashadro, who had been to see Kungsandor Rinpoche quite a few times, you know, what should I offer him when I go there? And she said, well, Nakmashadro Rinpoche told me to bring a nice bottle of whiskey, you know, when you go there. So I did that, quite nervous, and then said, yeah, this is very good. And he kind of, like, yeah, we kind of had a good, good relationship there. And... Uh, I was very lucky to spend, you know, spend some good time with him. Yeah, because he kind of seemed to consider him, she seemed to like, uh, you know, like me bringing him uh, whiskey. So I did that. And uh, we were just kind of sitting there together, having a bit of whiskey. And then people would come in and then they, you know, they would leave. And he would then sometimes, you know, send you away. He said, you know, I need to rest now, go and do something. And um, it will then call you back and then it would just let you sit. There was not very much kind of formal teaching, 
going on at all. You would just sit there and spend time with him. And uh, I th- I just felt it was kind of quite natural. I don't think really, I, I think at that time I understood how precious those things were actually, because there was other people coming and saying, oh, you're so lucky to be. And I felt like it's quite natural, you know, I'm just here anyway. And uh, yeah, and uh, what to say about now? Yeah, no morning. Yeah, and then I was there for you know a few months, and it was very very good. We had a good time. He said, you know, please do come back, you know, and uh, when you can. And then I came back, and then I think uh, in terms of this biographical story, I think my mom, she was kind of not really into me being a Buddhist very much. You know, I think she didn't think I was in Nepal practicing. I think she thought I was doing other things here in Nepal. And uh, anyway, so she kind of signed me up for university when I was away. So I came back and then it was kind of a nice shift because then I went into kind of catching up on this, you know, everyday life circumstances. So for three years, I went to university, practicing, got into a relationship, uh, moved to Stockholm, the capital and Scandinavia worked. And then I kind of mainly kind of doing that for 10 years and studying, not very kind of, you know, lots of kind of life experience catching up on, you know, you know, living life. And then I broke up from one of my relationships there, which was a bit, you know, quite a bit difficult. Usually I've always had this kind of experience that it was really easy to kind of just move on. You know, it was kind of, you know, you took off a coat and you just move on. But this was a bit sticky, which was really good, you know, practice and also really good kind of experience generally, I think. And then during this time, uh, you know, between... uh, 20 to 30 years old, when I was mostly living my life, you know, having life experiences. I was also studying with Nakpar Valshi. And then it comes to a certain uh, point, you know, in a practitioner's thing where you have to move on. So then I moved to Nakshan Rinpoche and Kandodetchen. So they became my kind of formal teachers. And uh, actually before that, I forgot to tell you this. Yeah, so... It was always people in the Arutaya Sangha, we always used to go back to Nepal, you know, in different constellations with Rimche and Kandodetche. And, and uh, then we, one year we were there with quite small groups. It was me and uh, Robert Dudodori and Naksha Rimche and Kandodetche's son was Bacha Doja, Ertsin and Nordsin, the first apprentices of Naksha Rimche and Kandodetche. And a few others, and we have gone there to see uh, Kungsanorgi, of course. And at the at the same time, this great Nyingma Lama Trillinobrimche was there as well. So it was quite a lot of things happening in uh, in Nepal and around Boda. And uh, but there was one day when we went to see Kungsanorgi in a small group. So I had known in them for quite a long time, you know, probably ten years or something. And uh, we had been to see him, and then we were all walking back 
and then I remember I was walking a bit in front of Nakshamimpche when he kind of called my name and he said Jagir well I wasn't Jagir at that time and I kind of turned back to Rimpche and I said yes Rimpche and he said Kunsando Rimpche yes said that you should get ordained and I kind of kind of looked at him and said oh how nice so that's how kind of I was put in this situation as being ordained and then uh, Nakshon Rinpoche, together with uh, uh, Robert, performed the ordination ceremony there in uh, uh, in Boda, which was quite fantastic. But it was quite, you know, from his being a practitioner to kind of then being told, uh, you know, now it's time for you to move on into this kind of practice as ordained. You know, it's just different practices, it's no status this thing of wearing the robes and it's just a you know method of practice you take on but it's quite significant that it happens like that so in, in that sense what i was saying before lots of the things in my life have been this kind of chance and not really pla uh, planned you know they just kind of put you in a certain uh, direction and then you you go with that you know you take it on as a practice or a challenge you know it's not always easy but it felt actually quite naturally because he also felt like you know now i know that uh, my main focus is actually uh buddhist practice you know all the work things and careers is also important but it's, it's actually, actually main focus is your buddhist practice now as ordained uh, so that happened and then I was then studying more and more with Nakshan Rinpoche and Kandradeche. And then uh, it was one, I went to see Rinpoche in New York for a week, a few years, and maybe that was five and a half years ago. And, uh, you know, for time, because I was single, so from time to time, I would ask, you know, you know, some advice, you know, like, you know, should you get into a relationship and, you know, he might say no, you know, if you want to, but you know, not necessary. And then in New York, there was one night where we were sitting there talking to Rimpche, and then, you know, I asked him the same question. Uh, kind of, you know, do you have any suggestions for a relationship? And I was kind of giving some uh, suggestions, and. Uh, he actually just looked at me at that time and then he said, no, I think Metzal Wangmo would be a good partner for you. So that's how kind of me and Metzal got together. I mean, it was not that easy. Just from that. So that was just the suggestion. And then there was kind of, I was then having that advice. And then it was then, how do I enter into this? How do I fulfill this advice? And that took a bit longer. Uh, but that's how I kind of got together with uh, Metza. You say it was not so easy. What wasn't easy about it and what was the process? Yeah, so, well, it was more that, you know, I was living in Sweden and she was living in England. And uh, I hadn't really, you know, even if we had retreats, we hadn't really met, uh, you know, that many times over the years. So, you know, I remember I met her probably the first time in 2000 where we had a, a 
lodge retreat, ordination retreat in Barlow. And I remember because she's a few years older than me. And at that time, I remember I was standing one night, I was standing in the in the bar looking at her and a few others of the, uh, because we had a bar uh, there in the hotel. It was not like we went to a bar and people were just having a few drinks there. And I was just standing there looking at her. I remember she told her, said to me like, are you, you're quite a funny guy there, but you don't say very much, do you? <laughs> so that, that's one of the first, I remember one of the first interactions I had with Metzo. So that's quite delightful. Yeah. No, but uh, yeah, so, you know, it's, it's, it's not that easy to kind of just, you know, call her up and say, you know, how, hey, should, how should we do this? Or, Maybe better you ask some questions about it. Or... We'll come back to that, I think. I'd like to pick up some of your points earlier in your biography as well. In those early days when you were getting involved in the Karma Kagyu uh, practices yeah. and so on, what, what sort of practices were you doing at that time across that whole early period? Yes, it was mainly actually silent sitting as well because I had that uh, introduction from Sen. And... I, I kind of really liked that. And the teachings which was given at that time, also with the Karma Kagyu teacher I was studying, was mainly actually the Lojong, Lojong and Shinresig uh, Sadhana. So I didn't either, actually, I didn't start with a Tantric Nundra either in that uh, tradition. I mean, it was available, but I didn't pick it up on it at that time. Yeah. What was it about the Sangyum of Kangyu Rinpoche? You said she came out of her six-month retreat and you were there the day she came out and you said she had a tremendous presence. Can you say a little bit more about that interaction and also a little bit more about that presence? Yeah, it's, it's the presence and also the kind of this radiance of it. You know, you just sit and this is kind of nothing is really happening, but everything is happening at the same time without words. You know, it's not very chat, it's just kind of a big presence. Yeah, which really is not very spiritual because, well, it is spiritual because you can't put words on it. Yeah. And what was it, do you think, about the Nyingma style and the Tokchen style that attracted you or appealed to you over the Karma Kagyu style? Because presumably you could have continued in that Karma Kagyu vein. Yeah, it was very close. I mean, if I hadn't gone on that weekend with uh, Nakbar Walshig, I probably ended up, you know, somewhere else and somewhere. So, but I think it's this, uh, you know, this it's very natural, very kind of down to earth. Uh, style of practice you know just kind of your everyday uh, your everyday life is your practice I think and then I, I think it's also you know it, different lineages uh, kind of appeals to in diff, you know different people and uh, I mean it's also you know this is it has nothing to do I mean you mustn't you must make sure that this has nothing to do that the Karma Kagyu school, I'm not saying anything bad about the Karma Kagyu 
you know, school in that sense. No. Just a sort of personal preference thing. I suppose it matters a little bit yeah. as well which teachers you meet, rather more even more maybe than the lineages they're from. Yes, I, I think that's a really good point, actually. That's, you know, it's the teacher and then the teacher's kind of, you know, comes from a background. But I think also that's an important thing, that it's also something with the teacher and the lineage that you can't really, you know, separate. That even if in the Aurotera, there's many different uh, brevet lamas, as we call it, which are different personalities. But... There's also something which comes through, which is quite, you know, similar, the kind of lineage essence, this unspoken presence again, you know, which is there. Because it, that was what it was for me be before I met Metzal and I took on this teaching role. When I went to the different teachers in the orator, there was always some kind of similarities with it, even if it was a different person giving the teachings, there was always the same presence that radiating through. So I think that is what kind of essence of the lineage is. And then different, uh, different uh, teachers have different personalities, personalities, and then you can kind of, because it's, uh, you know, it's important to have somebody you can talk to and talk to about your experience and you feel kind of, you know, not inhibited to talk about, you know, because especially from the perspective of Tsogshin, everything is, and the inner tantas, everything is workable and, you know, can be infused into your practice. So, you know, your work situation, your relationship, your formal practice, you know, that's all kind of your practice. One of the things that um, is emphasized in the apprenticeship model that your lineage uses is this idea of personal interest guiding a little bit the direction of the practice. Metzal, who I, you know, your teaching partner was telling me that there's a sort of a general curriculum of various different uh, silent sittings and medium practice and a bit of physical practices and songs and so on that everybody gets generally. It's sort of everyone gets that. But also that people are able to uh, beyond that go in any various different directions that they like they may like to go in based on their own interest and you said you had an interest in trulcor the physical movements of uh, of that tradition so i'm curious what was your journey within that trulcor system yeah good question so can we can i go back because it's really good uh, interesting what uh, you asked so i just want to say that because the orator as a lineage is quite uh, broad, which means that to hold it, you know, all the different teachers uh, in uh, in this system, which we call brevet lama teacher, which is kind of quite a traditional way, but Rimchen Kanrodetchen has formalized it, and is this kind of uh, lamas in training, and that means that all of them even if they haven't specialized, you know, during apprenticeship, they will eventually specialize in something. So the whole orator can be taught, it can come out, and then different people specializes and hold different, you know, different teachings. Because there's a whole, quite a lot uh, uh, in there. 
Yeah, but with my, I think it's also this thing that you know, you, at that time it was so it was not so easy to kind of come across. Uh, you know, it wasn't like you could go on internet or YouTube and just kind of Google and see, you know, what is Buddhist teachings. So it was more like, you know, you would go to a library and you would find a book, for example. I think it was actually a picture of uh, of the Togdans doing Trulko in Namkanobu's book, The Crystal and the Way of Light. Because in the first edition, there's also a few other pictures of the long deck exercises. And that also kind of, there was something really interesting, with, which I thought was really interesting. Like you can actually meditate that way. It's not just formal meditation like this. That is actually physical or different postures where you can enter into meditation as well. So I think that might have been this first kind of introduction uh, to this uh, uh, the true course, and like you know, I wanted to explore that. And then I was talking to my uh, teacher at that time about that, the, the true core practice, because I was also quite, you know, fit at that time, quite uh, young. So it's easy, you need to be quite young when you end, start with this, the true core uh, practice, because they, they're quite uh, strenuous. And uh, so, so I I had that idea. So actually, that's also one of the things I asked Kungsandor Rinpoche when I was there in 98, if I could kind of receive the trulkos from him. And he said, well, maybe at some other time, or not that first time, he said. And uh, so I always wanted, uh, you know, to have them. So I requested Naxon Rinpoche, you know, for many, many times to have those practices because in different... Uh, uh, traditions they kind of vary uh, you know how you approach them and what the uh, exercises actually are and in the Aurotere they quite they quite simple because they come from the Tsogshin Sender part rather than the uh, Anu Yoga uh, Tantra aspect and uh, so in the Aurotere it's all, uh, el uh, 11 exercises of them which I've kind of then learned throughout time. Actually, I have a few more to learn. Yeah. Did you ever receive any true core instruction from Kunzan Dojo Rinpoche? Uh, not like that. He showed me a few. Yeah. But I never went back to study them with him. One of the things about Kunzan Dojo Rinpoche that one often hears is his uh, unusual way of uh, dealing with people, uh, if, if that's one way to put it. Uh, Bajra Dorje has told some some very evocative stories of, of his time with Kunzan Dorje Rinpoche. And of course, in Nakjan Rinpoche's book, Wisdom Eccentrics, it's all about his relationship with Kunzan Dorje and his, as they say, wrathful displays, wrathful teaching methods and so on. So I'm curious if you ever experienced or witnessed in your time with Kunzan Dorje Rinpoche anything like that or any interesting stories? Yes, so... I mean, first of all, I think it's important to resonate this uh, that Rimche says in Wisdom Eccentric and also in your interview that, you know, it's not some kind of selfish uh, wrath that, you know, comes out. It's just kind of, you know, at that particular time for a student. But I think it's, 
it's just very kind of sharp. Like he could sit, you know, you would sit with him and it's a fantastic, uh, fantastic day, you know. And then he would just say, oh, I need to kind of relax, goodbye. You know, he would just kind of, each moment could just change in a moment. You know, just kind of now is something new happening. Or he could also just kind of, like in the story of, I heard from Bachador, the Hito, like, you know, sometimes he could just kind of call on you at any time. Or, yeah, you know, he could come into your, in your room. I remember when I, when I was staying there once, he just decided to come and I was sitting there practicing at the retreat center they stay. And then he just kind of comes and knock on your door. And uh, he showed, yeah, then I was sitting there with my gomtag and he took my gomtag, you know, put it around his head saying, oh, this is an amazing gomtag. I haven't seen such a nice gomtag since I was in Tibet, you know, and he put it around him and he then, you know, talked about, yeah, different practices where you were using this gomtag, for example. And then he would just kind of, walk out of the room again, like nothing has happened. It was just this kind of totally unpredictable. Yeah. But he was always very kind to all of Nakshan Rinpoche's and Kanradechian students, always, in terms of other people coming to see him. Then he would just kind of, he could just say that, oh, I'm tired tonight, come back in a week. And then they would come back and then he had another reason not to kind of uh, see them, particularly if you asked for Tsogshin and Salung teachings, then he would just, you know, refuse. Why do you think that was the case? Uh, it might also be that sometimes it was, you know, people studying with other lamas, and then instead of going to their own teacher, they would then go to him which wouldn't be, you know, the right way to do it. If you were sent by your teacher, he might accept it. Like the Dudu Rinpoche sent Naksha Rinpoche to study with him. That would be because sometimes people just go, if they can't get something from one teacher, they go to another teacher to, to you know, to try to get it. So he, I, I think that's also this way that he would kind of... Uh, check people out you know what they were what they were like or you know did they just want to kind of come and get something collect it and then move on or were they actually you know wanted to really study with him and then also you know lately me and Metzel have been quite fortunate to go to Bhutan because of this conference we do and so then or every time we then stop in Nepal and we go to see Kung San Rinpoche's Sangyum, Jomo Sampo. So we've been able to do that the last five years, twice a year or something. But also, you know, her stories about Kung San Rinpoche as her husband, as a consort, is always how kind he was. You know, he's, she never mentioned anything about being a wrathful lama towards her at all you know it's always like oh i was ill i was ill and kung sandal rinpoche would do, engage in these practices it would make me soup and you know come up to the bed and you know make sure you drink this you know he was so extremely kind you know all the time just looking after her when she was ill and then so you know he never manifested any wrathful teachings towards her 
as I have heard in that sense. That's interesting. When I talked to Metzal in that interview, she said a few things about your courtship and the beginning stages of your relationship. And one of the things she said is that she had been single for quite some time uh, beforehand and had, in a way, settled into being single and really wasn't looking for a relationship particularly. And that there was quite an adjustment on her part. Transitioning from being single and by herself to being in a relationship and you know living with somebody and these sorts of things. So I'm curious, from your point of view, what that adjustment period was like. In fact, she, I think a direct quote is she said she was rubbish at it. <laughs> That's what she said. I'm not asking you necessarily to uh, validate or verify that uh, assessment of hers, but I'm just curious from your point of view, what was that uh, like? Yeah, but. You know, because it was such a, in a way, you know, delight for both of us to have this opportunity. Because as being in the Nyingma school, which goes back to Parmasambhava and Yeshit Sogel, and then in the Gurkha Changlode, and then particular the Oriter, where uh, relationship is such a big part of the practice in the Therma, I think we were both really, really happy as, you know, being solitary practitioners that actually be able to you know have a partner who's also a practitioner because you know it is not not a problem of not having a partner who's not a practitioner but you know it's you know the other person knows what you're doing so in that sense even if it's hard to enter into was hard to enter into a relationship a little bit it's also the immense you know the kind of it's so much more joy. And then, you know, we fell in love as well. And then because, uh, not because, when you fall in love, you know, you just kind of opens up, open up. And it's such a delight, you know, you say yes to everything. And it's such a good, you know, such a good time. You know, the magic of love. Yeah. You mentioned that previous relationship that you got out of that was very sticky and difficult. In other relationships, you've been able to move on quite easily, just like taking off a coat, you said. And this particular one that you referred to was uh, more sticky. And you said that was very good from a practice point of view. I'm wondering what you mean by that, why it was good from a practice point of view. Well, first of all, it was from my personal experience. I, I thought, you know, because I had just been able to move on from one situation to another before. And then, you know, I would just say to somebody else as well, you know, just let go, move on or something. And sometimes it's not so easy to do that. And that might not always be the most practical answer to someone, you know, because sometimes you are there with emotions which you can't really, you know, separate from. You know, they're just there and they're so strong. So in that sense, it was really, you know, in terms of our, how we practice with emotions, you know, they're there, you have to practice with them, you can't kind of try to reject them, you just have to kind of stay with them. And that's a really, really good introduction to meditation. Uh, uh, for us, and then it's kind of, in because we were in the same you know, this uh, girlfriend of mine, we were living in the same city. So we kind of, you know, we used to bump into each other on the streets. And I remember I bumped into her 
when I was on my way to Finland to do a two weeks retreat, kind of on the way there. And half of that retreat, probably, I thought about her in the retreat. And, I kind of, and then, uh, you know, we used to bump into each other more and more. And then later, I would just then kind of, oh, I met her this, this morning or bumped into her this morning. And I haven't thought about it, you know, uh, uh, at all. And then you could kind of, you know, you felt like, okay. no, but, well, I don't know. Sorry. No, it didn't come to an answer, did it? Well, it did. I think your point was that it was very triggered emotions, strong emotions in you. And you were able yeah. to work with them. And then over time, as you kept bumping into her, uh, you were able to notice basically the progress of your practice in dealing with the reactivity. Is that that seemed to be the point yeah, you were making? Yeah, yeah, exactly, yeah. Because you know, then you you will meet her again. You would say you didn't have the same emotions anymore. You didn't stick to your emotions. Yeah, they didn't stick. Yeah, good. How do you work with emotions in your lineage in that way? Is it particular practice such as observing the emotions, or are the true core movements involved somehow? Um, how does one typically work with difficult emotions in the Aratea? Mm -hmm. So first of all, the most important practice for us is the silent sitting, the four nalyas from Tsogshen Semde, which also are then the Trulkor are related to that series in in Tsogshen. So maybe I can try to relate those two. So the main point is when the emotion arises, is not to engage in it. It's not to start thinking about it because as soon as you think about it, you kind of separate from your emotion where it is in your body. So that's why you can't really do anything in terms of practice if you can't just let the emotion be where it is in the body and then they would have a physical sensation in the body and then you find your presence of awareness in that dim dimension where the sensation of the emotion is and that's the kind of the key point for us to practice but as, as if you don't start thinking about it you know like you know if you have the oh i have this i feel hurt about something and then you start thinking about it your conceptual mind is there, yes, and then you also separate from the emotion because it's you and the emotion. So that's the kind of, we all do a lot of silent sitting uh, in the order. And then also the Trulkor from the Tsogshin Semde, they have this kind of quite powerful uh, introduction. They kind of uh, use this uh, exhaustion like you exhaust conceptual mind. It's a bit like you, if you do uh, some physical exercise, which kind of exhausts yourself quickly. Uh, like if you run off the bus or something, you come in and you sit in the bus and you go, oh, because you kind of exhaust yourself so quick. It's, you also recover as quickly, but when that kind of short moment, when you kind of just sit and you kind of, oh, you might have an experience of openness and that's goes very well together with the the silent city meditation
meditation practice where you're looking for that experience. So that's how uh, the Trulko exercise exercises would uh, help with that. Mm-hmm. You mentioned there that the Trulko that you've learned is from the Dzogchen Semde. I think a lot of people are familiar with Trulko as it's presented in, say, the Six Yoga System or other sorts of Salung systems where part of the purpose, of course, is to Im- impact the energy systems of the body in some sort of way, one of the impacts. How does the Trukor in the Tsogchen Semde differ? So uh, the exercise or the movement are quite similar, but not really similar as well. I mean, it's this that you sit in full lotus and you don't do different movements. That's quite similar. And then it has this quality that it works on the nalva, the exhaustion of conceptual mind, rather than uh, Tsalung and uh, Tumo in the other in the other lineages. Uh, but we still have this that you know you sit in full lotus and you're jumping up and you're jumping down. And it's a little bit quite funny that when I learned this exercises, Nakshan Rinpoche just told me, you know, you, you do it like this. And then I had to kind of work it out. How do you, you know, sit in full lotus and you jump up? Or how do you stand up and um, jump into full lotus or into sitting down? And uh, I had to kind of experiment with different things. And then I met uh, Ian Baker who's kind of done some research into this. And then he told me how they do in Tibet. And I had no idea about how they do this. <laughs> so he does uh, that actually where you have water up to here. And then you can, you know, because of the gravity, it's much more easier for you to kind of, you know, get into the uh, exercises, you know, into full lotus. And after that, they move on to a, a pile of hay, for example, to have this kind of softness. And nowadays, Usually they have uh, also these thick mattresses, but I didn't know that until I kind of had to work it out myself how to do it. Yeah. I understand you also have an interest in hidden yoginis, and you, uh, for a period of time, were attempting to make a film about that. I'm curious, what is your interest or passion for this subject of hidden yoginis? Yeah. So I think it comes to. First of all, that we are a female lineage. Well, it comes from Yeshit Sogyal. So, and uh, you can find lots of biographies. And also, that's, you know, one of the. I always find it really, really inspiring myself to read the biographies, the Namtars, of at that time Tibetan or other Buddhist masters, you know, their stories, their quests. And, but there was there was never been very many of uh, uh, of female lamas, and I think it was also after Nakshon Rinpoche had written Wisdom Eccentrics, we also I also thought it would be interesting to uh, uh, collect Joma samples, Kumsanu Rinpoche's uh, consorts, her stories as well. So that's a kind of a project in the making to kind of try to collect her stories and then when we started it it we thought you know maybe we could kind of collect other female stories as well on a facebook 
page. That's more or less what the Hidden Yogini Facebook page is. Yeah. Can you recount any of Jomo Sampel's stories that might be of interest? Some of your favorites, perhaps? Well, I can tell you one which is quite interesting because it goes in the same theme as this, as uh, the Trulko practices and benefits. So it was after this, we had been to Bhutan the first time me and Metsa spoken on this Vajrayana conference. And, uh, you know, because Kungsundar Rinpoche, he was this amazing, you know, yogi who just lived in caves and uh, never kind of never went into any institutions at all or academic uh, things. So when we came back from the conference, Jomo Sampa was telling us this story, started to talk about, because we always knew, we always had heard stories before about Kungsan Rinpoche, that he took part in uh, scientific experiments. I could never really work out, you know, where this research was or who it was. So she showed us a few pictures and uh, she was then uh, telling us about that he had taken part in uh, French doctor's uh, experiment. And uh, she said, because it was at that time, uh, it was an American doctor, actually, I found out later from Harvard, Dr. Benson, who now has a big medical clinic in uh, America, who did the first research on this salon. They actually did research on the Trulkos and Tumor. And at that time, the Dalai Lama, he also wanted to meet then the, the most accomplished salon yogis of that generation. So he kind of sent out his assistant to find all around India, you know, the kind of most accomplished Salun yogis. And then uh, uh, Kung Rinpoche was actually one of them. So he was then invited to see the Dalai Lama who requested him to set up a retreat center for Salun practices. And uh, for different reasons that never that never happened, but it was a bit interesting. So this uh, I found out that um, the the scientific experiment that Kungsula Rinpoche had taken part in was by this Dr. Benson, and uh, so I I kind of Google him, Dr. Benson, and then I kind of found something. So I emailed him or his, his assistant, actually, asking about if he had any kind of, you know, stories to tell about Kungsandor Rinpoche and his, uh, uh, and his uh, research. And he actually replied uh, very, very nicely and said he very, very well remembered Kungsandor Rinpoche. What did he remember about Kunsan Dojo Rinpoche? Well, he wrote back, I think. This is also this funny thing that, you know, how actually down-to-earth Kunsan Rinpoche was. So I think he wrote back that he asked, Dr. Benson asked Kunsan Rinpoche if he could fly. And then Kunsan Rinpoche just replied to him, you don't need to fly, now, be able to fly now anymore. You know, you, you can fly in an airplane. It's not necessary to fly like that, yeah. 
but they would put them in kind of small huts of ice and then take kind of the, uh, have different scientific research you now like seeing how quickly they could melt the house and things like that and also kind of what the temperature was at the end of the fingerprints uh, fingertips and stuff like that and yeah have you ever heard of wim hof actually i have yeah the dutchman who is kind of doing also this uh, tumor things but it's interesting to see this how actually this practices uh, effects and affects the kind of immune system that you can kind of actually build up a much better immune system to prevent illness you know even from his perspective but i guess that's also what all this you know tsalung lamas did in the past as well that they had especially if they practiced tsalung and chud because there was always lots of practice, uh, stories on the part like great chud yogis going into where there were pandemics or like lots of sick and they could practice there for the people and also sometimes just uh, stop the illnesses as well by the power of the practice or they would not be affected by the practices. What do you think it is about the combination of chud and talung practices that has that sort of an impact on the immune system say or allows one to be unaffected by such things? Because probably it's because it's working so directly and forcefully with uh, uh, cutting of uh, self. But be, be, be both practices, you actually visualize, there's lots of visualization there and movement in the visualization. So they kind of, in a way, they uh, they feed each other. You know, they're both aspects of Salung practice. Well, let me ask you this then, just to, as a last thing. What is a typical day in your life from a kind of practice point of view? I know you're out there living at Drala Jong, which is the new retreat center of your uh, lineage, a farmhouse in Wales. You and uh, Metzel and yourself are the caretakers there. So I imagine, maybe I'm imagining incorrectly, that you do a fair amount of practice there. What's your routine? Yeah, interesting. So, you know, you would think that we have live in this wonderful place and we just sit inside in the shrine room and meditating all day. But it's a fantastic place, this Dralajong, with lots of land, lots of woodlands. So, you know, looking after that is pretty much hard work every day in terms of informal practice as we would call it but you, you could say that you know when we practice more formally we try to do uh, like semi-retreats so we practice before breakfast in the mornings before breakfast and then before you know a session after breakfast until lunch and then in the afternoon and then in the evenings. So that's usually called for tunes, for practice sessions. And then, you know, the times within those sessions could then be, you know, longer or shorter, for example. So you could have two hours before the breakfast 
or you can, and then between breakfast and lunch, you could have maybe half an hour, an hour and a half, for example, or then afternoon it's longer, then you could have a longer session there with some practices. So that's, you know, if we semi-retreat, that's usually the kind of the model we follow. Otherwise, after breakfast, it's usually, you know, eight hours of physical work out on the farm in the in different way. And also because our practice is, is all based on the Tsukshin view. And in terms of that, you know, everything is your practice. And then because, you know, then we want to kind of try to integrate with our practice. That's why we do a lot of uh, crafts in our lineage as well, because it's very, that's very good for your meditation, integrating um, uh, stillness with movement. You know, everything, if you go out, if you go out and shop wood, you need to be very precise in terms of that. That's very kind of good practice for you as well to kind of integrate your meditation with Shin and Lato with those. Or, you know, we have to go move the lawn or everything. You know, there's always something to do and you have to kind of use passion and precision with it. You know, you have to be aware of what you're doing and also, and that is, you know, part of the practice when you kind of move away from the meditation cushion, you know, the post-meditation as we call it. And then it goes back and forth and, you know, if this corona thing wouldn't have happened in the summer, there would have been you know, Rimchen Kanrodechen would have come and all the Sangha would have come here to work on the place and uh, have teachings as well. And, you know, then it's more of a being an organizer, you know, retreat organizer. So that would be, a, so it's, uh, it, it varies quite a lot, you know, what we're doing and how a day, what our days looks like. Well, Jagu Torje, thank you very much. Thank you so much. Thank you for listening to another Guru Viking podcast. For more interviews like these, as well as articles, videos, and guided meditations, visit www.guruviking.com.